Haymaking Days by John Stuttard. Chapter 24. Wondering Aloud. Dad got bored of Spain. By contrast, Mum loved it there. Dad repeatedly tried to find things to do. For a couple of years, he brought his 18-foot silhouette sailboat and moored it in Estepona Marina. This meant trailing it from Santander, where the ferry docked, 600 miles across Spain. The journey took us through the appropriately named frying pan of Spain. Towing the silhouette meant we couldn't go faster than 40 miles per hour. Peter and I felt like two forgotten soldiers of the 8th Army as we pressed on and on and on through the dust and heat many years before air-conditioned cars. The journey put everybody in a disastrous mood. Mum's chronic fear of roads, Peter's complete impatience with the journey and my inevitable car sickness created an atmosphere of familial hostilities set against Dad's stonewall silence and oblivion to all around him. I was the only one who was interested in Dad's boat. Mum and Peter refused even to go on board. To them, it was an enormous waste of time and effort to bring it. After a couple of failed family vacations, he gave up on his silhouette and tried a smaller, more manageable boat called a hydroglider. This is a 15-foot shallow craft which Dad managed to attach to the roof of our Vauxhall estate. But still, Mum and Peter refused to participate. Spain was a problem for Dad. He always had the hay crop to deal with at that time of year, so he was forced to stay at home. But he did have a sense of fun and adventure. It was unfortunate that his idea of fun was so poorly aligned with Mum's and Peter's personalities. He liked to be active, sporty and challenged. In 1975, he decided that it would be a tremendous idea to take the family skiing. This suggestion received a stony rejection from Mum and Peter. Mum did offer to come along for the après ski, but Peter dismissed the whole idea as ridiculous. I did not think it was a ridiculous idea. I too got bored sometimes in Spain. A week of action-packed skiing was just up my street, and I jumped at the idea. Why don't you just take jigs? Mum suggested. I don't think I'll be able to look after him alone, Dad replied. Oh yes, I'm sure you will. He's 13 now. You will both have a great time, Mum argued. Please, Dad, I begged. He looked at me doubtfully and then smiled. Right you are then. Just the two of us, he decided, and I jumped with enthusiasm. We spent the next few weeks reading ski brochures and eagerly deciding where to go. We fixed on a little Austrian resort called Alpbach in the Tyrol Mountains. We selected a four-star hotel named the Burglerhof, which Dad mispronounced as the Buggerhof. We shopped for ski wear in the Arndell Centre in Nelson. I was enthralled by the kit we bought. Thermal underwear, incredible ski jackets with pockets everywhere, blue and white leather gloves. I felt like we were about to climb K2.
Dad had been skiing many times before I was born, and according to Mum, he was an excellent skier. The prospect was thrilling. To add to the excitement, Dad booked a sleeper train from Preston to London. Preston Station was made famous during World War I for being the hub through which millions of troops moved. It is straightforward with its six platforms all in a row. In the 70s, as with so much of the UK's infrastructure, it was poorly maintained. Built in the general opulence of the Victorian era, it was originally a construction of considerable beauty. In the 70s, money was tight and beauty was unnecessary in a train station. Those responsible for its operation paid attention only to unavoidable maintenance and it fell into disrepair. It had the look of old age and neglect. For me, that old station was a familiar location. Often, I was waved off to school by my parents if they were too busy to drive me back to school. The feeling of loneliness as the train left the platform filled me with unhappiness. I would watch through the window for the exact spot where my mother was waving for some time after the train had left the platform in an attempt to hold on to my vacation. I would come back to my senses abruptly and sit alone awkwardly amongst groups of travellers and the ever-present smell of tobacco smoke. Conversely, the station also represented complete happiness to me if I was travelling home to be met by my parents from school. I knew every stop on the line and how much longer until Preston. I guess, in the same way that those millions of soldiers must have viewed it, Preston represented either the start of a long period away from one's loved ones or a delightful reunion. For me, Preston's faded prime was captured wonderfully by Jethro Tull's Ian Anderson in the miniature melody, Cheap Day Return. On Preston platform, do your soft shoe shuffle dance, brush away the cigarette ash that's falling down your pants, and you sadly wonder, does the nurse treat your old man the way she should? She made you tea, asked for your autograph. What a laugh. I heard Ian Anderson play that song recently in Stanford, Connecticut. The song lasts only 1 minute 23 seconds, but it has a soft and mesmerising melody that Ian Anderson occasionally sprinkles into his powerful folk rock. He reworked the music for a small 15-piece orchestra with such originality and skill that the music did seem more invigorated and renewed than dated. He introduced the song with an explanation about his own father's illness being the inspiration which will turn out to be quite some coincidence. Then he introduced another of his tantalizingly short melodies as perhaps the best thing I have ever written. Wondering aloud how we feel today. Last night sipped the sunset, my hands in her hair. We are our own saviors as we start both our hearts beating life into each other. Wondering aloud, will the years treat us well? As she floats in the kitchen, 
I'm tasting the smell of toast as butter runs. Then she comes, spilling crumbs on the bed, and I shake my head. And it's only the giving that makes you what you are. I was captivated. I have loved this song for so long. Again, it is so short that one almost regrets the beginning as the end follows so swiftly afterwards. I looked at my beautiful wife beside me as she enthused unselfconsciously at the performance. One song represents the regret of one relationship and the other the complete fulfilment of another. But apologies, I have digressed. Back to the point. Dad bought me a magazine to read on the train. It contained all kinds of trivia on the movie Jaws, which was the box office hit of the moment. Our train left at 10 p.m. Filled with notions of murder, she said, I watched for parallel trains until I fell asleep. We were allowed to sleep on the train in Euston Station in London until 4 a.m. Our plane left at 7 a.m. from Gatwick to Munich. By the time we got to the hotel, I was overcome with excitement. The village of Altbach is truly lovely. The bugger off was faithful to the description in the brochure. It was charming and possessed that log fire warmth which offers such welcome refuge to the cold of ski mountains. We had only time for the admin of hiring boots, skis and booking classes before dark. Dad and I sat together for the first time in the hotel restaurant. Typically, Mum would take charge of these situations. Dad never talked to waiters and waitresses. Mum always started up conversations with the staff in restaurants, so that by the time we left, she had created new friendships. Dad hardly ever joined in, but now he was clearly in charge and it was fun to witness him take control. The waitress spoke no English and the menu was only in German, which we did not speak. Our choices were limited. Because we had booked the all-inclusive price, Semmel Knödel was our main course. Neither of us could place what exactly this dish was made out of. It had a meaty sauce and tasted rich and delicious. Dad asked the waitress to explain. She put her index fingers to her temples and waggled them like ears or horns. Rabbit? Dad suggested doubtfully. Nine, she laughed, embarrassed. Dad looked at the two balls on each of our plates and jumped to conclusions. He waited until I had finished mine before announcing that he thought we had eaten sweetbreads. What is that? I asked innocently. Testicles, bull's testicles, he added, laughing brusquely. I stared at my empty plate in horror. It was too late now. I was careful to eat chicken or fish for the rest of the holiday. I am still doubtful that Dad was correct about that dish. But if ever in Austria again for dinner, I will find out for sure. I took to skiing like a duck to water. I graduated up through varying levels of ski school until I was ready to be taken up the mountain. 
it was electrifying to be taken so high via the network of chairs and drag lifts. Classes were selected by ability, not age, and I found myself making friends with an unlikely group of ski novices. Progress was quick. By the fourth day, I was ready to spend the afternoon with Dad. Over dinner the previous evening, we had pored over the piece maps. In Austria, there are three colours denoting the difficulty of the slopes. Blue represents the easiest, then red, and lastly black. We carefully selected a route down the mountain, which avoided all black pistes. I met up with Dad after my ski lesson, and we took the bubble car lift 1,850 metres up Hornbarden slope. As we ascended, visibility got worse. The skies had been grey most of the week, and much snow had fallen. Today, a blizzard had been forecast. As we climbed higher, Dad began to look dubious. I don't know if we should ski in this, he said. Oh, come on, Dad, we'll be okay. We'll just follow the marker poles. For me, this was the pinnacle of the week. I had so much look forward to skiing with Dad that safety concerns were an irrelevance. As we emerged from the bubble car station at the top, the frozen wind feasted on all the exposed areas of skin like a shoal of piranhas. We tucked, clipped and buckled, and our ski wear was good. My goggles made me feel as if I was watching the weather from the inside of a TV set. My feet and lower legs were in pain from the ill-fitting boots of that era, but I'd got used to that discomfort. Apart from that, I was ready to go. I looked out of my goggles and suddenly realised that I couldn't even see where the pieces began. I looked to Dad for guidance. Another party of skiers had just launched off to the left, so we followed gingerly in their direction. A blizzard had come down hard and I could only see about 30 feet. We were experiencing what skiers call almost total whiteout. The other skiers vanished like mountain phantoms. After only a couple of slow and difficult minutes, we had skied too far from the lift station to return. We stopped. I could tell that Dad was very concerned. There were absolutely no pieced marker poles in sight. We had no idea what level piece we were on, and it was getting harder to distinguish what was actually pieced from off-pieced. For my mountain initiation, this was some test. The simplest directional aid was gravity. We could, at least, distinguish down from up. So we pressed on. All week long, the resort had been a multicoloured swarm of skiers covering every yard of available slope. As I followed Dad's black jacket, I wondered where they had all gone. We were very much alone. Then, a couple of expert skiers whistled past us at breakneck speed. At their level of experience and obvious knowledge of the route, the blizzard was no hindrance. The relief I felt at suddenly seeing them was immediately cancelled by desperation as they evaporated into the white. At least we must be on some sort of trail. Dad said nothing, 
but I realized he was making an attempt to follow in their direction. So far, the gradient was no worse than the slopes I had trained on. Only the weather and visibility were an issue. But I felt the ground underneath me fall away into a much fiercer slope. I saw a lone pole and skied right up to it. Only when I was next to it could I make out that it was black in colour. It dawned on me that I was attempting to ski down a black run in a blizzard and a whiteout on my first attempt down a mountain. We could not see ahead or behind and there was nobody else around. I think it might be an English peculiarity that we would rather die without causing a disturbance than raise the alarm and call for assistance. Oh flip was dad's verdict and onward we pressed. I fell countless times. The undulations of the slope were impossible to predict. I let my knees tell me what was going on below, as I couldn't make out the ground properly. Dad stayed as close as possible, so that I could follow his trail. It was exhausting. After what seemed like an eternity, but was probably only 20 minutes, visibility improved and I could make out the base station below. Thank God! We felt like Shackleton's rescued Arctic explorers. Our spirits lifted. The immediate and considerable dangers were over and we skied down fast and carelessly to safety. They are jigs. Nothing to it, said Dad with a smile as we both took off our goggles and stared back up the mountain, shocked at what we had just done. No more skiing today. Let's get back to the hotel, Dad said. Over dinner, we gawped at the pieced map, realizing the route that we must have taken. It was black for two thirds of the way and red for the last section. We laughed together with pure relief and sense of accomplishment at the adventure. Dad was just as relieved as I, not for himself, but for his responsibility for my safety. We told and retold the entire journey over dinner and then by the fireside as Dad sipped scotch, bonded by our mutual survival. When we got home, I was a ball of energy, dying to share the whole holiday with Mum and Peter. We all sat around the kitchen table for dinner, while the fun of our adventurous week flooded out of both of us. It was Dad who was the most animated at the table. He hardly ever engaged in much conversation, but tonight he was the life and soul. Music